Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters. Welcome to Mark Inc. Ministries. I have the privilege today of interviewing on the topic of betrayal, conflict resolution slash betrayal. Uh, Reverend George Grant, who is a prolific author, has written well over five dozen books. Uh, he serves as the pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church and he is the founder of King's Meadows Study Center, the Chalmers Fund, New College Franklin, and the Cominius School and Franklin Classical School. That's uh, quite a resume and I'm only touching the surface. I want to <laughs> welcome you, George. It's so good to have you here today. Thank I, you, my brother. I, I remember when I first joined our denomination many years ago, hearing of you, I think one time you and I actually had a discussion around the table at a, at a woman's conference of all places. I think you're right. And uh, we were talking about the racial reconciliation. Yes. Uh, I want to open us in a word of prayer, and then I want to address this uh, very difficult topic of betrayal, especially betrayal in the ministry. So why don't we pray together first? Father, I thank you so much for my brother, George. I thank you for his wife, Karen, and just for the way in which you have used them in so many ways, in so many years, to affect the thinking of people, the understanding of the gospel, the understanding of church life and theology and the great doctrines of our faith. Just so grateful, Lord, that he has agreed to come here and be able to minister on this topic of betrayal. So bless our discussion, Lord. May it prove to be for your glory and your glory alone. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, we have started at Marking Ministries a virtual counseling center. We've hired counselors from all over the country who do virtual counseling. And some of those guys are pastors. Some are ex-pastors. And one of the things that has become commonplace in talking to pastors, not just on our Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling format, but pastors locally, men that I know, is many of them are going through horrific circumstances that can be described only as betrayal. It's commonplace. I met with a missionary recently from India, sat across the table from him, a man whose life has been threatened. And I said, is betrayal commonplace? And he just kind of smiled. He said, I have been betrayed so many times. And whatever, whoever I talk to, whatever pastor I talk to, they, they speak somewhat with a spiritual fever, a spiritual infection of betrayal. Do you see it as, well, let me call it epidemic in the ministry? I think it is. I think it is common to the human condition to undermine those who have helped us most, uh, which is a peculiar thing, but it's, it's all too common. We see it all through the scriptures over and over and over again, sons betraying fathers, brothers betraying brothers. Uh, we you know, see the heart cry of David in Psalm 55. We read of the Apostle Paul's anguish in Philippians chapter 1, as he describes those who preach the gospel out of envy or rivalry. We see his anguish in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 5, the, the divisions in the church that undermine men and their apostolic ministries like Paul or Apollos or Peter. 
So I think it's the human condition. I don't think it's anything new in the modern evangelical world. But I do think that in times of stress and disarray, it gets worse. And we have had plenty of stress and disarray over the course of the last uh, year to 18 months. And as people fear, as they have uncertainty, as they face disruption, as anger uh, foments the culture all around us, I think the tendency to attack, uh, to undermine and to betray those who have loved us best and helped us most becomes all too common. How do we distinguish between destructive criticism and positive criticism? How is a pastor supposed to know when a friend, and I'll put the word friend in quotes, is being constructive or destructive in his criticism? That, that's one of the great questions. John Owen raises this question, I think, very powerfully in his discourses on self-examination. Uh, we see this in the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. In some ways, I look to Andrew Bonar as is incredibly helpful on this. A lot of his hymns uh, that he wrote were, were the fruit of self-examination. When we are critiqued or criticized, I, I think our first response should not be defensiveness, but rather we should listen and then go to the Lord to seek what we need to repent of or what we need to change in or grow in. A lot of times, people don't know us well enough to know what our real sins are. I know that uh, I went through a really difficult season in our presbytery where I was accused of a number of things that simply were not true. And I, I remember thinking to myself over and over again, they don't even know me. If they knew me, they would never accuse me of these things. But in some ways, I'm really glad they don't know me because then they would accuse me of the things I'm really sinful of. And it was as I was thinking through that process, I suddenly realized perhaps the Lord was using this as, as the rivalry and uh, envy in Philippians chapter one did for Paul, pointing me to the greater glory of God, prompting me to a deeper repentance. So I, I don't think it's ever easy, Chuck. I don't think that we ever have this perfect formula to be able to distinguish between constructive and destructive criticism. Uh, I think we can recognize lies. I think we can recognize envy and rivalry, as, as Paul does in Philippians 1, or divisiveness, as he does in 1 Corinthians 1. But if, in every circumstance, we allow the criticism to drive us to quicker repentance and the honing of our gifts and our callings, then we'll at least have a path towards healing, however hurtful the betrayal might be. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading a book called Pastors and Their Critics, an excellent book, outstanding book. 
And the author of the book says this, I want to read this to you because it goes hand in hand with what you just said. He says, I learned a lesson rather poignantly on one memorable occasion in the ministry about 30 years ago. An elder in the church who strongly opposed my preaching began to spread a false, severely damaging rumor about me. The rumors spread throughout our denominational churches like feathers flying everywhere from a pillow ripped open. He said, I began to pace back and forth in my study, trying to pray, but unable to. I was angry and bitter and full of angst. Not knowing what to do, I grabbed a book from a shelf, flipped it open and began to read. I hadn't read more than a page or two before the author said something like this. This is what I want you to respond to, George. If you have ever felt angry when a false rumor was spread about you by a critic, stop and consider, you really ought to be praising God that your enemy doesn't know how bad you really are. In fact, the rumor is not as bad as who you are in the depths of your heart. Amen. There's Amen. introspection, huh? That, that's so powerful. You know, in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul, wrestling with the divisions in the Corinthian church, um, essentially says, um, the thing that we have to remember the most in all of life is the, the gospel itself. What it is that the Lord has done for us, what grace actually means. He, he talks about judging what is true, what is not true, judging the various apostolic ministries of Paul and Apollos and Peter. And he says, we have to remember, it's only God who is the judge. And I think what, um, what the author there is, is reminding us of is simply the gospel. It's so easy for us to forget the essentials of the gospel. God has forgiven us for the unforgivable. Uh, God has poured out grace upon our depravity. The Lord has redeemed us from the clutches of hell itself. And so whatever it is that we get accused of in our ministries, and however hurtful it is, and I don't ever want to minimize how hurtful these things can be, but the truth is, is that the Lord has forgiven us of far more, and what is truly in our hearts is pretty pernicious. There's an epidemic currently of suicides among pastors. Yes. They are, they are, that's one aspect of it, but in droves, pastors are leaving the pastorate. Some of them with words like this on their lips, I will never serve in a local church again. There seems to be, I, I don't, I want, I want to be careful to call it bitterness, but it certainly smells of bitterness with a lot of men who are who, who have had it up to here. They right. basically said, I'm just not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into something safe like skydiving. Uh, I, just, <laughs> I just don't want to do this anymore. Right. Their wives are devastated by some of the betrayal of their closest friends. I mean, I personally remember years ago, a man who I led to the Lord, who ate Thanksgiving dinner at my table, just a few days after all of that took place, 
betrayed me uh, and basically led a revolt against me personally. It was devastating for us as a family. We went through this for four years. And in that time frame, the doctors told us that my wife's cause of stage three breast cancer was the stress over those four years of some of the pain that came as the result of the ministry. So I understand why men are leaving the ministry, but here's a guy sitting on the brink and he's face to face with you. He's across the table from you. He says to you, George, I've had it. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I get treated better by the world than I do by the church. I've never experienced anything. You never expect this to come out of God's people. I want to get out of the ministry. What say you? Well, I think that the very first thing that I have to do is affirm that everything he's feeling is legitimate. I think one of the things that we tend to do in moments like that is to try and minimize or to brush away or to say that it actually doesn't matter. Uh, When, in fact, the scriptures over and over again remind us that it really does matter. We all know of the innumerable times where we're told that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The great blessings and rewards of the kingdom eventually await those who have been insulted, slandered, sore vexed, who nevertheless persevere in their callings. We're at war, and war has casualties. And oftentimes, we are most vulnerable to what is peculiarly called friendly fire. And so the first thing that I would say to someone in that circumstance is to say, I, I, I know, I understand. And then I would affirm that they're not alone that I know this, and you know this, Chuck, in 2020, I don't know of a single pastor who has not thought of either leaving their present charge or leaving the ministry altogether. I talk to you know dozens and dozens of pastors every month. I don't know of a single pastor who hasn't at least thought about it. And so I, I think it's helpful for those of us in ministry to be reminded that we're not alone. But then third, I would say to them, uh, tell me about who you're in relationship with. Who are you accountable to? Who do you pray with? Who's standing with you in ministry? I've seen it over and over again. Pastors tend to be the loneliest people on the planet because they don't actually have friends. They have uh, their wife, they have their children. Outside of that, they've got either admirers or detractors, even oftentimes elders who love their pastors, don't have that kind of intimate relationship. And you you and I were talking before we pressed record about why it is that we're Presbyterians. Both of us came from non-denominational backgrounds, and we came into the Presbyterian Church in America largely because we saw in the scriptures, and we saw in our own lives, 
the need for connectionalism. Unfortunately, in American evangelical and reformed life, the busyness of ministry causes the impulse to connectionalism to dissipate. And oftentimes it's not real. And so one of the things that I always do with uh, men in distress in ministry is I say, before you make a decision, uh, you, you need to be praying with someone. You need to be walking with someone. You need to have someone hear your hurts and your sorrows and sort out what's legitimate, what's not legitimate, what's your sin, what's the sin of others. And then hear the real call of God upon your life. What is it that you're supposed to do in life? And if it's to persevere, like the Apostle Paul, through beatings and shipwreck and betrayals, then there is nothing more glorious than that. If, on the other hand, it's to uh, go to somewhere where the pastures truly are greener, then by all means, uh, run to the calling. Lay hold of the grace that the Lord has for you. But sort it out first. You know, in that litany of sufferings that Paul talks about, some of those things none of us will ever experience. He talks about the shipwrecks and the beatings. And you're reading that list and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this, this guy has to have been the greatest Christian who ever lived. And would I be able to tolerate all of that? And then he says, and you add to all of this, that, that great litany of horrible sufferings, the care of the churches. I interpret that as the pastoral ministry. He puts that in the same category in that litany of beatings and shipwrecks and all those other things. At what point does a pastor say, that's enough? I've had enough. In the last couple of weeks, kind of reflecting back on 2020 and all the horror stories that I've heard, and uh, the number of times I've heard people use the word unprecedented <laughs> to describe you know, the sufferings of the last year, I, I constantly think about all of the heroes of the faith through church history. But I decided to pick up this, uh, this wonderful book. Um, it is uh, William Bradford's account of Plymouth Plantation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the years between 1620 and 1647 were years of unimaginable suffering, uh, where over the course of the first two winters, the Puritan and Pilgrim Fathers actually dug more graves than they built homes. A season of, of loss beyond anything imaginable. And I read of the buoyant faith that enabled them to endure and lay foundations for this great experiment in liberty that we have inherited. And I'm astonished. And I think one of the things that is helpful for us in times of betrayal and distress, of loss and uncertainty, is to do what 1 Corinthians 10 calls us to do, and that is to remember, to remember all of those who have gone before us, and to recall the fact, as, as Paul says there, these things have been set down 
as examples for us. Then concluding with that great declaration, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, meaning all of that great legacy that has preceded us. And then the promise that he will provide a way of escape also for us, just as he did for them. That's exceedingly helpful uh, because it reminds me not only am I not alone right now, but that this is a part of the great spiritual warfare for the gospel in the midst of this poor fallen world, and that God uses fallen men like me as his instruments of reconciliation in this world. One of the things that some authors are contending today is that one of the reasons we have an epidemic of pastors who are leaving the pastoral ministry is their inability to make deep friendships. What should a friendship between a pastor and a congregant actually look like? You know, when I was in seminary, I went to a pastoral ministry retreat where a number of seasoned pastors were And uh, three speakers in a row said, never become friends with anyone in your congregation. Wow. That was what we were taught. That is antithetical to what the gospel is, and it is antithetical to the idea of covenant community. It's antithetical to the character and nature of the church. Now, I appreciate the fact that they were trying to help young preacher boys like me to steer clear of the heartache and the betrayal, to have a little bit of detachment that would enable us to escape less wounded than otherwise. But I think that it is so misguided. Sometimes the hurt is worth it. Sometimes we really need to press in. I, I have never been hurt more than by my own family at various times. You know, it's, it's those that we're closest to that can actually hurt us the most. But it's those family members and the love that we share and the bonds that are inescapable that provide the way of healing, growth, restoration, wholeness, and deeper love than ever before. And so I think one of the things that we have done is that we have failed to encourage the real love and bonds that a local church should provide. A week ago, I went to the retirement ceremony at a nearby church about an hour away of a dear friend in our presbytery who served well for 29 years in a local congregation. And they had a lunch, little country church, small church. And it was so beautiful. I know very well my brother's pains, heartaches, sorrows, sufferings, and betrayals while he served in those 29 years. But he never allowed those things to deter him from loving his people and and investing his whole life with his people, where his best friends 
were all there in that congregation. And the way they celebrated those friendships that afternoon was a beautiful reminder to me that though I know the stories of his hurts and his wounds, in the end, the investment in those friendships was worth it. There are a lot of tears, a lot of tears of joy and thanksgiving and gladness in that room. Do you think there is an expectation on the part of some people in the congregation of a relationship with the pastor that's unrealistic? <laughs> Always. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there, there are basically only about two ways that that can go. Either your head goes up on a pedestal or your head goes rolling down the street. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, you know, a pastor can't be friends with everyone in the congregation, uh, but if a pastor's ministry has deeply affected a family, they want that. And so th that has to be handled very delicately and wisely. But, um, you know, that's, a, that's just a part of life. And it's a part of leadership. It's a part of the process of navigating realistic expectations in our world. I recently uh, spoke with a pastor who vented what he felt was betrayal by some key members of his church. He says, and I'm quoting him indirectly, uh, this isn't exactly what he said. He said, I've baptized their children. I've married their daughters. Uh, I've buried their dead. I've had fellowship with them in my home. I've been in their homes. We've been friends for years and years and years. And this is what I get in return. These were some of his very, very dearest and closest friends. Related to that, I remember a time, and I'll speak to you personally. I remember a time back in the late 80s when it was determined that my wife had breast cancer. And it was a serious breast cancer. I actually saw the tumor and I thought, this is it, we're gonna lose her. Turned out to be stage three, and of course she survived. But she knew the pain I was in, dealing with the fear. And she called some of my closest friends. These are people that we, men that I played ball with. Uh, we went to drive-in theaters together. Uh, our, our children were raised together. And asked these men, I didn't know she was doing this, asked these men to reach out to me. And none of them did. And, and it became a very, very painful point of division to the point that they actually left the church over. They just couldn't take my, my pain anymore. What is my responsibility? What is this other pastor's responsibility when he starts speaking of how badly he is hurting over the fact that his friends betrayed him so terrifically? What should his response be to that kind of betrayal? Well, I think there are three things immediately that come to mind that need to occur in his heart, in our hearts when those things happen. And I will say, I've experienced the exact same thing and I've been astonished. But the three things are first, the realization that, that sometimes What's going on is they don't know how to face pain themselves. They're afraid 
themselves of that kind of pain. And so to come alongside you in the midst of your pain exposes them to their own vulnerabilities. And so that that just really reminds us all over again of our need for the gospel, uh, our, our call not to fear, etc. Secondly, it's a reminder to us that a lot of people are attracted to pastors and leaders uh, because of strength, the strength of the proclamation of the word, the strength of the joy. And so when they see a crack in that, you start to realize who loved you for who you were and who loved you for what you could do. And it becomes a real clarifying moment for all of us. It's hurtful, but you start to realize, okay, uh, perhaps these relationships weren't as deep, as profound as I thought. But then the third thing, and this is a lesson that I've really tried to take to heart, is when I see what I think is a terrible injustice done to me, that can be a provocation for me to make sure that I don't perpetuate that for others. So one of the things that Karen and I have done is we we see all of these hurting pastors. We see fallen leaders. We see guys who walk away from the ministry either because of scandal or because of, of deep sorrows. And we've just kind of taken it upon ourselves to reach out to them with no expectation of response and just love on them. Write them notes, you know, do, do it on a regular basis over time and to reach out in ways that others have not reached out to us. Jesus says a remarkable thing. If you have a red letter Bible, you see it in such an odd place. It's not in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul quotes something that Jesus says that is found nowhere else in the Gospels. He says it to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's an astonishing notion. It's changed the way that I have approached ministry because I've realized that the best thing that I can do for someone is to teach them how to be a giver, not to simply give everything that I've got as a pastor, pour out everything that I am as a pastor. I'm not really helping someone until I've discipled them to the point that they can give of themselves to the point of genuine blessing. So for me, it's great blessing to reach out to others. And I start to feel as I'm consoling others, the consolation of the Lord. It's It's what Paul talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when he says, the comfort that we ourselves have received from the Lord, that's the comfort that we're to give to others. When we don't get the comfort from our dearest friends or those that we thought were our dearest friends, maybe that's time for us to look around for others who are hurting and comfort them with the comfort that we've received only from the Lord. When I was invited to give the commencement address at Covenant Seminary, several thousand people sitting there, I actually turned my back to them and addressed the students that were sitting behind me, several hundred. They were sitting behind me, and my address was to them. And at one point during that address, I got all choked up. 
fact, I, I feared that I was going to break down right on the spot because I looked into their faces and I thought, you guys have no idea what kind of pain the ministry is going to bring you. You have no idea. You're, you're there with the cap and gown and you're going to get your diploma. Your hard work is going to pay off. You're going to take your exams before Presbytery, et cetera. But you have no idea how painful the ministry could be. So I want you in our final question here, I want you to take, pick out one of those students and he's about to enter the ministry, probably thinks he knows it all because he's been taught so much. And I want you to address the issue of betrayal and pain and suffering in the ministry and give him a note of encouragement. Peter tells us that the devil uh, is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. When we come into ministry, we come with a lot of knowledge, those of us who have been prepared in seminary. We feel like we have a lot to give. But Peter tells us that in circumstances where the roaring lion is after us, our greatest, our most powerful resource is our humility. It's the humble that the Lord raises us, uh, raises up. It's the humble that the Lord enables to stand. It's the one who knows how redeeming the power of the cross is in our lives that is able to withstand the assaults of the evil one. And so what I would say Dear one, entering into the pastorate or long enduring ministry, I would simply say, run to the mercy, lay hold of his kindness, rest in his provision, know that, uh, that it is in your humility that you will find strength. It is then that the Lord will lift you up. He resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. George, I want to thank you so much for your willingness to be interviewed today. Some of what you said is so convicting that I think to myself, well, I wish he hadn't said those things (laughs) 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 because they're too convicting. Thank you so much for it. And I would like you to close our time in prayer and pray for those pastors and and their wives out there who are experiencing tremendous betrayal now and maybe even thinking about leaving the ministry. Why don't you close us in prayer and pray for them? I will, I will. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And I I do cry out to you for those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I pray for those who have been insulted and slandered and sore vexed. I, I pray for those who have been betrayed. I pray for those who feel like David did in Psalm 55, who cried out, if it had been an enemy, but no, it was you, a dear friend who betrayed me. That is why I am laid low. For for every one of my dear brothers and my dear sisters who feel the weight of that right now, I pray grace abounding. I pray comfort and consolation, the likes of which can only come from the throne room itself. Uh, Lord, 
have mercy upon us. In these difficult days, make us ambassadors, unflinching in our proclamation to a broken and poor fallen world. There is hope yet in the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose finished work on our behalf has brought us near and nigh to the mercies of God. For we pray all of this with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, George Grant. You've been listening to an interview with George Grant. The topic is betrayal. I want to encourage, if you are a pastor and you need help, you need personal counseling, you need somebody to talk to, Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling can be that avenue for you. Just visit us at markinc.org and you can find the, the link necessary to make an appointment to talk to one of our counselors to help you navigate through whatever you might be experiencing. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Help and Hope resource. May God richly bless you is our prayer. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.